here. One of the things that we do, I think, as humans to kind of mark time, to mark change, is we kind of divide time up into different ages, to kind of different uh, stages. And then there's these transition moments where we enter a new stage and we leave a stage behind. This is true in uh, transportation. We kind of start in the 4000 BC uh, by kind of capturing the power of a camel or a horse to lead us or take us somewhere. And then that gets replaced by the wheel gets invented and chariots and, and things change. We go through these seasons and there's transition points. As a kid, I remember it was in the video game world. Was a, It seemed like an age that was constantly changing. I grew up in the Atari and ColecoVision days, little handheld devices, uh, playing Pong and some other really incredibly graphically advanced games. And then as I got older, we got a Commodore 64 and we played Pigs in Space on floppy disks. And then that stage ended and, and it continued to change and continued to change again and again and again. And this is true through history. We kind of are in a season, it changes, there's a hinge point, and we enter into a new season. We've been studying through the book of Acts, and if you're kind of studying Christianity, even just from an academic exercise, the book of Acts captures one of these hinge seasons where we leave behind an era and a new era begins. It's the era of of the birth of a local church. A small group of people, about 20 or 30, That has become today 2 billion people gathering in churches worldwide. And so today we look at, uh, continue to look at the study of this first group of believers and what their life was like, what were some of the things that happened in their time. And today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 1692 in the Bible in front of you, or you can look it up electronically as well. I'm just going to read the first 13 verses, uh, Acts chapter 2. So if you're familiar with the New Testament, there's the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the next book is the book of Acts. And it's really the story of what happens after Jesus' death and resurrection. And what does it look like when the church actually is birthed? This is Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, and Pentecost was a, one of the three Hebrew festivals. It was a one-day event. Jews from around the world gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate. Kind of the harvest, uh, really, is what it was. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. When they saw what hap- seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were God-fearing Jews staying in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans, which was their way of politely saying, aren't these hicks? Galileans is like rural, farm country. These aren't people known for culture and the ability to speak multiple languages. How then is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. These are African areas. Visits, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and even Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, 
What does this mean? What's going on? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. A natural conclusion when you hear some people preaching. Acts chapter 2. When, when the Holy Spirit comes on this day of Pentecost, there's three things that happen here. And let me just kind of unpack them for a second. The first is they hear a noise. It says it sounds like, it wasn't, but it sounds like a violent wind. Anybody hear any violent winds lately? Okay, and we're not talking a wind. There weren't papers flying around the room. This was not a hurricane in a house. This was just a sound, but it was like a violent wind. Now, wind and spirit are the same words in both the Hebrew language and also in the Greek language, and they're used interchangeably as context would require. In Genesis chapter 1, we have this image before God creates the heavens and the earth that the Spirit of God hovers like an eagle over the chaos, and it's, it's the Spirit, it's the wind. There's a vision in Ezekiel chapter 37 where God talks about people having their lives renewed, and he paints a picture of a, of a graveyard and a Wind blows through and brings the dead bones back to life. So often the scriptures speak of where the spirit is active, there is also a wind. And the other is fire. What looked like what look like? Tongues of fire, flames of some kind. Now you remember John in Luke chapter 3, verse 16 says, you know, Jesus came promising to baptize people in his spirit and also with fire. Fire has a purifying effect that what is holy cannot enter something that is unholy. Fire is the symbol of God leading his people through the Israel, through the fire by night. And then the third here is the ability of these Galileans to speak a language that they didn't learn in school and that no, their mom or dad didn't teach them while they were growing up. The ability to speak a language that you didn't learn. Now, I don't know if you saw this week, but there was a fair bit of buzz around the world because a new AI generated this new capacity for you to record yourself speaking in a video of whatever language you speak, and you can choose what language you want it translated to, which is cool. There's been translation services uh, going for some time, which are incredibly helpful even here in this morning's service. But what this AI option has now is it takes the video and it changes your lip movements to match the language that you aren't speaking. So if I suddenly played a video of me uh, speaking English, it could translate it to German, but my lips would be pronunciating German words, which means there's going to be a whole generation of kids who do not grow up watching bad, overdubbed movies. It's a horrible, horrible shame. But they could call this technology Pentecost. These, the God's Spirit comes on these people and allows them to speak languages that they never, ever learned. Now, let me just make a couple of comments because we'll see as we go through the book of Acts, and maybe you're curious about this whole topic about the ability to speak in tongues. Um, you know, the Bible is not speaking about your private prayer language here. It's literally talking about people speaking a language that they've never learned before. I know that in some circles in Christianity, there were those who believe that unless you have this gift, you can't be Christians. There would also be some who'd say those gifts aren't given anymore. They've ceased to exist. Neither, of course, would be true. Uh, but there's varying degrees of understanding around the more charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you grew up in a church where there's Father, Son, and Holy Bible. 
And, you know, anything charismatic, anything too experiential, that belonged to another denomination, so we didn't talk about it, we didn't teach on it, we just kind of left it alone, almost to the point that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, you think the Holy Spirit is kind of the poor cousin of the Trinity, not really to be taken seriously, which of course is untrue and unfortunate. The other extreme is to think that the Holy Spirit is kind of responsible for everything. It's Friday at 5, you pop into Sobeys to get some groceries, the parking lot is packed, but uh, alas, a spot opens up for you just by the door, and it's the Holy Spirit, of course, making this parking space available to you. I have a friend of mine that's pastors in a Pentecostal church, and he says, we had to stop our students from wearing their smart watches to worship services because they'd be praying and worshiping, and then they'd be sending, you know, Snapchat messages, and then they'd be praying and worshiping and, you know, checking Instagram, and, you know, it became this thing that almost fabricating experiences with God. And regardless of how you grew up, or regardless of your experience of God's Spirit working in your life, I hope that as we go through the book of Acts, you would be open to understanding more and more of how God's Spirit works in your life and in mine. Now, in these 13 verses, there's two main themes that I just want to talk about just for a few minutes, and then we'll, we'll let you go here today. Um, but the first one is so important, even if you're just kind of trying to understand Christianity at its most basic level, and kind of how the movements of faith and how God has worked at different periods in different times. So I want to draw back the camera lens just to, for a moment and kind of give us a little bit of a short history to help us understand this moment that we just read about. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We get this beautiful description of Eden, the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where God walks with his creation, and the place where they have a face-to-face relationship. Then humans sin, they are expelled from God's presence and were not able to meet face to face. So God in time calls for the construction of a temple. And the temple is to be the place where heaven and earth once again meet. You can call it Eden 2.0. It's the place where God is going to dwell and it's where you and I would go to meet with him. And this, gar- this temple has all the symbols of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden had trees, uh, and, and the temple had lampstands decorated to be trees. The entrance of the Garden of Eden faced east, as did the entrance to the temple. At the center of the garden was the tree of good and evil. At the center of the temple were the Ten Commandments. And on and on it goes, that when God gave the instructions for them to build the temple, it was to be that place where God could meet with his people. And when Jesus dies, and the temple is deemed irrelevant for for worship, God pours out his spirit and his presence, not on a building, not on priests or pastors, but on his people. And this is the significant hinge moment in the history of Christian faith, when God now comes and dwells among his people, saying, if you want to encounter me, you don't need to go somewhere to a specific building. God does not reside at 61 Forbes Drive, the location of this building. If you want to experience God, you don't need to go and get a priest or a pastor to come and facilitate that process. God now lives in us and is working in us and calls us to be his presence, his redeeming presence in the world. And what we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts is the disciples trying to get this into their mind and into their thinking and into their practice. 
uh, that you don't need places and specific people in order for God to be at work. He can work in and through each and every one of us. And what's interesting to me, and as we kind of read this account this morning of God's Spirit coming on the church in this way, inhabiting His people, so to speak, the very first thing those people do, those disciples, is they reach out to others. I mean, it's interesting to me that the very first thing that happens when God's Spirit comes upon them is God gives them the ability to share His work and His mercy with other people that God continues this tradition of reaching out to people and drawing them back to himself. Now, it was interesting to me also that when God gives them the ability to speak, he doesn't choose a language that they would have all had in common. For example, in this time, most of the disciples would have been able to understand Hebrew. It was the language of worship. It was the language of some of the scriptures that they would have had written at that time. It was the language of the Psalms. It would have been their prayer language, their singing language. Uh, they would have had prayers that they repeated every single day that all of these uh, Jews from all over the world would have had in common. God could have spoken to them in Hebrew. Hebrew, but he didn't. He spoke to them in what I would refer to as their heart language, the language they speak to their mom with, the language of their kitchen and their dining room and their back deck, the language that they first learned. And there's something powerful about being heard and someone speaking to you in your heart language. I listened to a podcast by an Irish guy, and he often says, when God speaks to me, he has an Irish lilt in his voice. We all experience this today. When the service is over and people fill in the foyer, there's some of you here today, for, for you, English is your second language. And you've worked all week in your second language at work or at school, translating, trying to think in English, speaking English, trying to get all the verbs right. But then you get around somebody who speaks your heart language and you don't speak English. You will hear Spanish and Portuguese and Mandarin in the foyer today because it's so good just to be able to speak and be heard in the language of your soul. And so when God comes on his believers and he speaks to people in their heart language, he's saying, I am your God and you are my people. So the day of Pentecost is not just some cool kind of charismatic experience. It's a fundamental shift in how it is that God is choosing to work in the world. That's the first theme. The second theme is this, just the power of faithfulness and openness. The power of faithfulness and openness. I think one of the mistakes we make as the church as we read a passage like we've read here today is that we think we need to do something to generate God's supernatural activity uh, every time we get together. That we need to kind of whip ourselves into a frenzy so God will show up and do something significant in our time. And we're going to see that time and time again, as we read through the book of Acts, God's people were doing the things that God's people have always done. They gather for worship, they meet to pray, they open the scriptures, they're fasting, they're gathering furniture and delivering it to people's homes, they're finding places for people to live. They're doing the things that God has called them to do, and God's spirit moves in that moment and they're open to it. 
And they follow the Spirit's leading in those times. One of the things that we'll see again, we'll get, we'll get to the story of the Ethiopian eunuch who is traveling and he happens the scriptures open and simultaneously Philip is praying and God's Spirit lays it on his heart to go and meet with this Ethiopian eunuch. Both of them are being faithful. Both of them are open as the Spirit leads and it leads to this divine encounter. There's a story of a church service, some disciples gathering together for worship, and as they do, there's this sense that we should ask so-and-so and so-and-so to go and be missionaries. They're doing the faithful things that God calls his people to do, and as they do, God shows up and they're open to his leading. Even on the day of Pentecost, they were gathered together for worship, and in the midst of that, God shows up and he does something significant, and they were open to it. And I don't know what you have in your mind when you picture the disciples worshiping in the upper room, if you're picturing some giant one-con worship event, thousands of people, strobe lights, and all of this stuff. That wasn't what it was like. They were praying and worshiping in the ways that they'd always prayed and worship as God's people, probably chanting psalms in Hebrew, praying the Shema, praying the Lord's Prayer, doing the things that they had always done. And as they were faithful in that way, God shows up, does something new, and they are open to it. And I think this becomes a healthy pattern for you and I as God's people, trying to discern what's it look, to live like, what's it look like to live out our faith even now, to do those common faithful practices. And as we do when God's Spirit speaks to us, moves us, challenges us, stretches us, we are open to the Spirit's leading in that time, and we are found to be faithful. Not skeptical, not hesitant, not guarded, but open. Discerning, yes, but open to God's movement in our life as He shapes us more and more into the likeness of His Son, as He equips us as a congregation to wrestle with what does it look like to be faithful to the Lord in this day. Let's pray. Lord, today we would simply ask that you would bring to mind the opportunities that we have to be people of prayer, people who fast, people who read scriptures, people who worship, people who serve, people who live generously with what we have. And yet as we do, we would live with a sense of expectation that God, that you would meet us in these moments. I pray for each person here today, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and that we would learn, as the Apostle Paul says, to learn to walk in the Spirit as you lead us.